Russia's war against Ukraine has escalated significantly this year, but it did not start in February or even in 2014. Its roots are far deeper and more malign than just territorial ambitions. Today, I'm exploring how Russia got to this point and where it goes next, with a person perhaps best equipped to answer this question and a long-standing critic of the Kremlin, David Satter. Russia's attempts to control, coerce, and dominate Ukraine have deep roots in its Soviet and imperialist past and are very much a byproduct of the weakness and internal dynamics of its aging totalitarian regime. David Satter is a journalist and historian who has written extensively about Russia and the Soviet Union, especially the decline and fall of the USSR and rise of post-Soviet Russia. David became the first American journalist to be expelled from Russia since the Cold War in December 2013. This was perhaps not a surprising move, given that his books have covered topics such as the FSB's role in the apartment bombings that brought Putin to power and the criminalization of Russia under Boris Yeltsin. David's core theme is why a pluralist and progressive state did not emerge from the collapse of the Soviet Union and how this understanding guides its current policies and actions. From 1976 to 1982, David was the Moscow correspondent of the Financial Times and then became a special correspondent on Soviet affairs for the Wall Street Journal. He is currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a fellow of John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's been a research fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and a visiting professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. As well as numerous articles, he is also the author of several books that are essential reading to help understand the origins of the current crisis, including the brilliantly named books, It Was a Long Time Ago and It Never Happened Anyway, Russia and the Communist Past, Darkness at Dawn, The Rise of the Russian Criminal State, and The Less You Know, The Better You Sleep, Russia's Road to Terror and Dictatorship under Yeltsin and Putin. David, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So your interest in Russia as a culture, a history and a force in the world, that goes back a long way. What really triggered that interest? Well, you know, I was a child of the Cold War and uh, it was quite natural, really, growing up in the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, to uh, be interested in the Soviet Union. After all, they were the great adversary of the free world. And uh, in the eyes of many people, they were the hope of, hope for the future. They offered uh, the promise of a, of, of a utopian system that would solve all social problems, that would abolish war, that would establish equality. Uh, end oppression, end class conflict. Well, it was a very appealing uh, uh, image. And of course, it attracted interest on the part of people who were uh, concerned about the world, concerned about the future of humanity. And uh, even at a young age, I was I was such a person. And it didn't really turn out that way, has it? Uh, I mean, were no, you- No, no, it didn't. No, quite the opposite. And were you surprised when Russia in, expanded its invasion of Ukraine in February this year? 
Well, only in the sense that I I I assume that that such a a, a move would 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 uh, lead to uh, absolutely catastrophic uh, losses and possible destabilization of Russia itself, which is I think what we're seeing, or at least we're at the beginning of such a such a process. So I had some doubt as to whether they would actually go through with it. Uh, whether or not uh, Putin and his henchmen would understand uh, what they were embarking upon. But I certainly didn't rule it out. And it was clear after the 1999 apartment bombings in which they murdered hundreds of their own people that they were that that they didn't operate with any kind of moral restraint. So therefore, any you know whether whether it was this crime or another crime, uh, they were going to to do something terrible to reinforce their hold on power. It turned out that uh, it was the invasion, a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which I believe in part was the product of miscalculation on their on their part. But the but uh, a regime run by a terrorist uh, that is uh, afraid of its own people is uh, capable of practically any crime and they they've demonstrated that and with no conceivable moral limits either i think that's what people get wrong no, about Putin. no they have they have a built-in justification that they they, they for them they're the highest moral criterion is uh, the interest of the state and so therefore if they can they you know anything that they do they can for example attack a school full of hostages with uh, flamethrowers and uh, grenade launchers because uh crushing you know killing all the terrorists is a, a vital state interest as for the lives of the the hostages well that's that's collateral damage but i mean they can any crime that they commit in their own interest they can justify as being an act undertaken in the interest of the state. And they've even elaborated a kind of pseudo ideology to replace the old Marxist-Leninist ideology, which uh, at least among themselves, they uh, they use as a, a potent device of self-justification. Before we deep uh, into the sort of deep roots of the conflict, I think you've mentioned this current kind of instability. And in fact, there's one kind of shocking but quite intriguing event, isn't there? Which is the callous murder of Daria Dugina. Um, I don't know if you agree with me, but this seems much more likely to be the result of internal struggles within Russia than something that would benefit the Ukrainian war effort. Yes, I, I, I do agree. I do agree. In fact, I've written about this uh, just recently, uh, we don't know. There's a group that has claimed responsibility, the National Republican Army, so-called. We don't know if this is a real group, uh, if it's uh, something that's been invented. Uh, it could well be uh, a group that does exist at some level, but it reflects the, the attitudes and goals of a faction in the leadership, which under any circumstances wants the war to end. But it is, uh, I, you know, the Ukrainian authorities would have no, you know, they have enough on their minds and enough to deal with without uh, going after uh, propagandists in Moscow, of whom there are many, 
Mm. And she was quite insignificant a, uh, one, wasn't she? She wasn't. Yes. One well, she or her father were, 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 you know, they, they, in effect, got a lot more, or he got a lot more publicity than he deserved for his harebrained theories. But the, but he, 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 at the same time, he became a potent symbol, and uh, eliminating him uh, could be the way in which one faction in Russia is speaking to the other faction. This often happens, uh, even among in business people when they had disputes in Russia. Uh, it was a rather common thing, for example, to kill uh, the director of security of of the opposing uh, economic group just to demonstrate their intentions. I mean, the murder is a normal, is part of the, in, unfortunately in Russia, became part of the normal process of conducting business. And this, this, uh, this is, this would be all the more true in the case of factional rivalry in the leadership. So what I, I, uh, whether or not there is a real terrorist group uh, a real national Republican army in this in in any true sense, or whether this is a construct and a group of people who've been just hired to carry out something on behalf of a faction. Nonetheless, we're seeing the first signs of possible internal conflict that uh, could become very significant. It's not true that everyone in the Russian leadership is totally propagandized and that everyone in the military and in the security services has lost their mind. Uh, there are people who uh, understand how, how deadly this invasion and this whole adventure has been for Russia and would like to stop it. So uh, unfortunately, we're left at the present moment largely with speculation, but in informed speculation would, I think, suggest that whether it's a newly formed terrorist organization or a group acting on behalf of a Kremlin faction, nonetheless, internal conflict and internal, con and internal tensions are beginning to reach a point that's uh, uh, da dangerous for the war effort and 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 could really have an effect on the course of the conflict. Another theory that I've heard um, uh, discussed on uh, Navalny's uh, team's uh, channel is that, again, yeah. it's, it fits this um, theory of a signal being sent, but it could even be a signal of the FSB signaling to far-right groups that uh, if Russia needs to somehow withdraw from the war and abandon the war, that uh, you know these far right groups should not oppose too vociferously um, because there's been a That's lot of part, that could be that could be part of it yeah. that could be part of it but the the, the it's also uh, we you know we're getting into an area where we have very little to mm. go on and so we have ought to tread very care carefully mm. uh, you know I uh, the that. My view of this whole thing is that the most likely explanation is that one way or another, this is an act of a faction in the Kremlin leadership that either is opposed to the war as such or is opposed uh, to the war in the way it's being waged or uh, doesn't oppose it but wants it but realizes realizes it has to stop. 
That's my guess. I think we'll wait and see what happens next. Subsequent events will, of course, clarify things. The, the one version that I don't think is plausible is that this was, as the Russians say, something organized by the Ukrainian intelligence. I think they have more important things to, 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 to do uh, to, advance, uh, to advance the war effort. And it would require a lot of agents on the ground. It would be a very expensive operation to conduct on, on Russian soil. They have, I think, far more meaningful targets if indeed they do have uh, people on the ground. And do you think there's a problem here with the Western media who tend to latch on to fairly simplistic um, narratives and they latched on to someone as Dugin, who is a Putin ally, when in fact uh, his influence is probably limited? Um, I don't know what your thoughts are there, whether... He even has channels of communication with the with the Kremlin or not? No, I don't know if he does or doesn't. But the 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 war effort is not ideologically driven. That's the important mm -hmm. thing. Any 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 uh, theory of great of Russian greatness or restoration of the empire or resistance to the West, all that that's just camouflage. That's uh, what what's involved here is personal interest it, as as grim and as as frightening as that may be they are this is a small group of people uh able to manipulate an unthinking mass against its own real interest use them as cannon fodder in order to preserve its hold on power mm. now so the 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 theories of someone like dugan may they they may appropriate those or they may come up with theories of their own uh that are equally ungifted but uh, uh, but the point of them is is really to serve as, as some kind of justification. You know what in Russia they have this saying: "Information for fools," and uh, it's something which we, that they can pound into the heads of people, but not that they believe it themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and and to an extent, then the war itself is a miscalculation. What they were looking for was a. Uh, what they say in Russia, you know, a small... No, good for you. If you speak, war. that's a good... good you're, you're Russian, it's very good. The um, But the war was neither small nor victorious, uh, as other small victorious wars, beginning with the Russo-Japanese War, uh, turned out to be neither small nor victorious. Could that lead, in some sense, to the sort of seismic changes... Uh, unintended consequences that happened uh, in Russia at the end of the Russo-Japanese War, and to an extent as well, the way uh, Finland's resistance to the Soviet Union put a bit of a check on the expansion of the, the Soviet Empire. Good, good. We don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, the, we, the, the, well, the, the, the Russo-Japanese War, the failure in the Russo-Japanese War led to the Re revolution of 1905. As for, you know, the, the defeat in the Crimean War led to ultimately to the freeing of the, of the slaves, the emancipation of the serfs. So where there's plenty of a precedent in Russian history for a defeat in war leading to fundamental changes, that uh, it, we'll see what happens is, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the Russians are indeed defeated uh, or if they suffer, if setbacks that can no longer be disguised or presented as a victory mm. or could be but but, but the problem is the 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 
Russia needs a, a moral and psychological change. And for that, it needs the, the benef beneficent influence of the West. And the West itself is really uh, the post-Cold War West is little equipped to exert that kind of influence, especially insofar as we've turned inward and we're we're obsessed with with things like um, race and gender discrimination, which you know, without commenting about how important or unimportant those issues are, uh, they're not going to you know make it possible for the West to exert international influence. Those aren't issues on which on the basis of which a country like Russia, which has uh, a really authoritarian psychology can be weaned away from it and convinced that individual human life and individuals have some sort of value. And that's a good point, I think, to ask really about one of the major themes you've written about, and that's that Russia has never really reconciled itself to the horrors and crimes that were committed in the 1930s. Um, before Russia you know, transforms to understand that value of individual life, are they going to have to revisit their past first? Well, that would be in a fundamental contribution because uh, all too often Russians regard the, the, the victims of communism, the victims of totalitarianism as inevitable, uh, the, the inevitable cost of modernization or something uh, a product of history or as unavoidable as the weather. They don't understand such a thing as human agency and moral moral responsibility. And the one way to counteract that, of course, is to memorialize those whose lives were taken away from them uh, so, so, so pointlessly. But uh, they, there was a, a start on that when, during the perestroika period, when the idea of memorialization, commemoration, uh, honesty about history, all those things were terribly important. But they were important in part because they could be used as a political weapon against the old regime. Uh, once the regime had fallen, interest in those issues you know, was, was, was greatly diminished. And those individuals who uh, still pursued their ideas, they, they they were fairly marginalized fairly quickly, weren't they? Like the founders of Memorial and, and these civil society uh, institutions. Uh, yeah, I mean, more, uh, marginalized, uh, they just lost their their influence in society, even without deliberate, deliberate marginalization. Uh, they were no longer useful. And the number of people who, you know, it, it, there was a, a, a recrudescence in 1996 when Yeltsin ran against a communist candidate and and needed symbols of uh, of communist, you know, it's, 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 it's symbols of communist uh, or or memorials to communist uh, victims uh, as a symbol of what you know what what uh, awaited the country if the communists came back to power. But that, again, was a political motive uh, rather than a, a purely moral motive. I mean, Yeltsin showed no real interest in, in, uh, in commemorating victims 
when it was not to his political advantage. In fact, Yeltsin was the party official who was responsible for the demolition of the house in Yekaterinburg, but then it was called Sverdlovsk, uh, where uh, the Tsar Nicholas II was executed, was murdered along with the members of his family by Bolshevik uh, assassins. Absolutely. I think in your book, um, what's very telling and perhaps wasn't quite clear at the time, but became clear uh, later on, is that the few sites that were um, uh, found or admitted to uh, for the mass killings in the 30s, um, probably only a fraction of the real number of sites that existed, rather than being memorialised by society, they were handed over to the church, weren't they? And seeing, you know, the pronouncements of uh, the patriarch and the role of uh, the church combined with the FSB and the state, it's kind of quite clear, isn't it now, that those victims of terror were only seen as maybe, um, you know, a step towards uh, creating a new centre of power, which would have been, uh, you know, the church, church-state alliance. No, I mean, the church is, was, uh, well, first of all, a lot of the barrier burial places were not commemorated in any meaningful manner mm. at all. And those that uh, that did exist were uh, uh, put under the authority of the church. I mean, many of the victims were not believers. They were not uh, Russian Orthodox. Uh, and uh, uh, in any case, the, the church itself was... Uh, subordinated to was subordinate to the regime and mm. and and uh putin never misses an opportunity to clothe himself in these uh, uh symbol in religious symbolism in order to create the impression that he's some kind of a moral leader mm. so the church leaders are very much complicit in his crimes i mean mm. this is a way of appropriating memory and using it uh even even you know to a degree they're ready to tell the story they have a a, a a memorial to the victims in moscow that they've created uh uh even solzhenitsyn's archipelago gulag is assigned in schools but within a it's within a framework which they 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 prescribe and uh uh uh, an overall framework which glorifies the prerogatives of the state and uh basically uh supports a system which makes such crimes possible and it's it's difficult to understand isn't it how such a a morally deficient person as uh putin uh you know gains so much power and in fact is able to retain the support of the elites that surround him but is is one of the reasons for this the failure to really condemn communism its horrors uh, in the way that, say, Nazism was condemned in Germany, that's one of the reasons. But the 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 core problem was that there was no rule of law after the break after the breakup of the Soviet Union. You had you had a situation in which the entire economic system was going to be changed from a system of state ownership to a system of private ownership, and. Uh, it was done without any kind of moral rules. And this was a legacy of Russian of ideology, of Soviet ideology, I should say. The, the notion that what counts is the economic system and that law, morals, ethics, culture are, are all derivative. 
So uh, therefore, the the even though the the young reformers considered themselves radical communists, they operated within a uh, kind of communist uh, or you know Marx Marxist intellectual framework. Uh, and their view was you, all we had to do was change ownership. Well, they did. They took a, a ownership out of the hands of the state, put it in in the hands of you know assets in the and, and factories and enterprises in the hands of private people. But the, the, this massive process, which it was probably the largest peaceful transfer of power of property, I'm sorry, uh, in in world history. Uh, was accomplished without the benefit of law and as a result what you got was gangsterism now who how do you defend gangsterism you know in a situation which still uh has at least formal elections uh well you, with the use of provocation and terror who is capable of employing provocation and terror well the former security services now renamed uh, and once they've uh, terror has been used uh, to solidify the hold on power of a criminal group, which is basically what happened, uh, then uh, uh, it's unrealistic to think that th those who use who use terror uh, will, will uh, in order to seize power, will ever give it up, and and they they won't. So just, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, well, so I mean, that's it. I mean, the thing is now the failure to to uh, to punish communists, to to expose them, to renounce communism. This was this 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 was the failure to do those things that would have strengthened the culture and made it more likely that the it would have been possible uh, to establish the rule of law and respect for the individual so that that a potential barrier to this criminalization process uh was never created neither in the institutions of the society nor in the mentality of people and you've also written compellingly i think about the role of doctrinism in russian culture and on the one hand you've got this criminal group who've been able to coerce the wealth of the country and all the levers of power but on the other hand, you also have a critical mass of people who seem perfectly happy to enslave themselves to an idea or just to power itself. You know, even though that decision proves to be impoverishing to them or at worst lethal for them as individuals. What, how do you think this process works in Russia? Because it's very different to the Ukrainian attitude, isn't it? Well... You know, it works in every country to some degree uh, that people uh, people accept a set of uh, uh, propositions uncritically uh, and then apply them to every political situation. Uh, and this is uh, simplifies the world and it relieves people of the of, of obligation to think in fact it's actually quite a temptation because once you know, and this was very this was very very obvious in the soviet union uh that the, the the soviet ideology broken down to a few simple to understand precepts relieved millions of people of the obligation to think for themselves and at the same time it in, in, engendered 
a certain feeling of superiority, paradoxical as that may be. Uh, Soviet citizens were very happy. They had the answers to every question. They had a formula that could that could be a, applied to anything, whether it was art, music, literature, politics, uh, and uh, and they could be uh, they could be assured that at least in the eyes of of their country and their and their regime. Uh, you know, they were absolutely correct. Political correctness, which of course now is also an issue in the West, I mean, it got its start that way. The idea that some things are, are simply correct in and of themselves without reference to higher moral or intellectual authority or to a, you know, to a, a serious reasoning process. And this is something that appeals not just to Russians, the, the difference is that in Russia, the political situation was such that uh, this tendency was massively reinforced. And that uh, that process indoctrinates you against evidence to some extent, doesn't it? And uh, it shields with... you, shields you from evidence, because basically uh, you're you establish a situation for yourself in which. Uh, your identity is tied in an unhealthy way uh, to a view of the world, which is artificial. Uh, and therefore, you're not, you know, this is a big mistake that Westerners sometimes make, assuming that if Russians knew the truth, that they would immediately throw over, uh, uh, you know, so, some of their ideas, including support for the war against Ukraine. It's not necessarily true. In fact, it isn't true because the, you know, the, I, for ideas to have an effect, there has to be receptivity to those ideas. And there's not going to be receptivity if the, the, the set of views that a person uh, has adopted and uh, made a matter of personal identity uh, are uh, perfectly satisfactory for him. He uh, He's not going to welcome anything that upsets his mental equilibrium or forces him to think. And to now, it, yeah, it can. It, uh, there, are, there are situations that can do that, of course. And, uh, you know, there, were, there was a cataclysmic psychological crisis after the fall of the Soviet Union mm. in, in this respect. People, you know, who had been had devoted their whole lives to to a set of ideas, suddenly felt their lives had been worthless, and that they had been worthless. And to an extent, the uh, without straying too far from Russia, I mean, that's perhaps the appeal of uh, Trumpism and Brexit to an extent. Their ideas that provide a ready answer, a simple answer to issues that are inherently complex uh, and it's yes, a similar but it works, process uh, it works in both on both sides that's just the problem i mean we're very we're very uh uh perceptive about seeing the degree to which for example in this country in the u.s uh uh the, the supporters of trump uh uh you know hold views that uh, are harmful to them, harmful to the country. It's uh, it's all true. We don't understand how our own behavior uh, fuels that phenomenon and how we hold views. I mean, I, it was very, for example, the, you know, I, 
and no one, and, and, and it's important to bear this in mind, no one with any real knowledge of Russia or the Soviet Union would have been fooled by the Trump collusion hoax. Mm -hmm. I saw the Steele dossier in 2017. I have the honor of being the first person to say it was false. Uh, but it was obvious Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, but 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 it dominated the American media for three years. Mm. Uh, now uh, and then we say, well, you Trump people, you dopes, uh, you don't trust the media. But yeah, of course they don't trust the media. <laughs> of course they go a lot further and then come up with their own crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. The thing is, the the the, the number of people is the. We, li we live in a complex world, uh, and we live in a world that actually, you know, it's, a, it's a paradox that oftentimes those, the better educated half of society, whether it's Britain mm -hmm. or the U.S., uh, is often the pur purveyor of some of the craziest misconceptions, because the, on the one hand, they, want, they take upon themselves the obligation to go beyond common sense and self-interest. But they don't accept the responsibility to really understand the issues, and to get and 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 so in fact, oftentimes they'd be better off if they hadn't even begun. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a paradox, but it's something that has existed, you know, for uh, for decades. There's certainly during my lifetime. I mean, many of those people who supported progressive, so-called progressive, the word itself is absurd, but because progressive in what direction, you know, but um, uh, causes that were called progressive in the 1950s, 1960s, 1940s, you know, with the passage of time, the, the uh, information that we have about uh, intelligence, intercepts, decoding, so on, we know, we know that you know, practically everything they said was, was wrong. You know, the defenders of the of, of 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 those supposedly being persecuted by crazy anti-communists. Well, the anti-communists were pretty crazy, uh, but they weren't wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, factual on on the facts, they were correct. But they may not have known that either, because they uh, uh, they operated also on emotion. We're at a a, a kind of uh, difficult juncture, really. Uh, because uh, we want, of course, to bash the other side. Uh, very tempting to do that, of course. Uh, we don't want to take responsibility for really understanding what we're talking about. And Russia, indeed, if insofar as Russia is kind of at the center of this in, in many cases, doesn't make it easy because they're anxious to, to manipulate those differences. And, uh, you know, those who are a little bit uninformed, they're determined to make really uninformed. This and, is one of the, uh, one of the so arguments. And so it goes. <laughs> this is one of the arguments I have had over and over with people who would say, well, Russia today, you know, if you're for free speech, um, if you're for the evolution of society, then you should say that Russia today should be allowed. Um, and because some of what it says agrees with my oh, point, you mean of view, the uh, Russia today television pro yes, television that's right. station, yeah. Um, and I try to explain to people that just because this channel challenges conventional wisdom, just because in some respects it agrees with your radical point of view, 
doesn't make the intentions of that channel correct. What they've been able to do is to understand the fault lines in society and manipulate them. In fact, drive them further apart. Well, that's what what all all Russian propaganda is intended to do. Um, the more we're at each other's throats, the better for them. Uh, Russia, Russia today is is, is a pure uh, propaganda. Is official Russian state propaganda, thinly disguised, and uh, uh, you may banning them is one thing. I mean, but but allowing them to present themselves as something they aren't is something else. I, mean, I wouldn't ban them necessarily, but you you, you know, I mean, how do you ban? How do you prevent them from from pretending to be anything other than Russian state propaganda? Uh, it's a that's a difficult question because of the pluralistic nature of our own press, or what you know. So, I mean, perhaps the 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 answer would be, yeah. I mean, it it, it you know maybe let let them let them let them broadcast, but 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 to the degree that we can make clear to people what they are. And hope that people will be able to judge for themselves. My guess is that Russia today is less important. It it does it has an it appeal for certain marginal elements, but it doesn't sway opinion and do as much to create instability and mutual hatred as we do ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, more serious a more serious threat than Russia today, if we're talking about the information environment, is the abandonment of of journalistic and ethical standards by the mainstream media in the U.S., for example, and 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 in Britain too, mm-hmm. uh, and in academia. Uh, the uh, I have have had the benefit of a British education, by the way, and. Um, so I'm a, a little bit aware of what goes on in in uh, the UK. We we pay a price for. I mean, what communism did. If we go back to the question of communism, what 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 it what it did and what it sought to do was to to abolish objective standards. There was the concept of class values. In other words, uh, all values were determined by the interests of the most progressive class. If something was in the interest of the working class, this is Marxism, classic Marxism, Lenin is is expressed by Lenin in his speech to the Komsomol in 1919. Uh, If something is in the interest of the working class, then it's it's moral uh, by definition, because there's no higher Sort of, there's no higher goal for society than the revolution and the and the uh, uh, the rule of the working class. So anything that advances that, even a terrible crime, is actually a moral act. Well, the effect of that was to destroy, and not just in the Soviet Union but worldwide, the idea of objective standards that there's something that is right or wrong, true or false, irrespective of the political context. Well, that's uh, now we didn't have communism in the U.S. We didn't have it in the U.K. We didn't have it in other 
Western countries. But that tendency to treat, you know, politics and political interest as the ultimate criterion uh, exists uh, you know, in the West as well. And it's very destructive. And it, that's the, you know, if you want to ask yourself, what's the root of all this uh, antagonism over what are actually fairly trivial issues, uh, aggravating but trivial. Uh, we're not dealing with mass murder. We're not dealing with an, an, uh, an invasion. We're not dealing with occupation. We're not dealing with summary executions. We're dealing with sexual harassment at the workplace, which I agree it's bad, or or gender you know, discrimination against sexual minorities or something. All these things are bad, but I mean it's not the same scale. Uh, and but in 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 assessing those issues, uh, we've we've had a tendency to abandon objective standards. It's very very obvious in the American press. We had uh, we we saw this, of course, with the uh, uh, Trump collusion hoax. Uh, the it's interesting that the airwaves were filled with phony information, and uh, you know I wrote for um, for the National Review for the Wall Street Journal on this, and it explained that this was Russian disinformation, but mm -hmm. uh, the. Um, and that, as it has proven to be the case, uh, and we'll hear more if the if John Durham, the special prosecutor, ever ever presents his report. But uh, there was zero interest in listening to that point of view. So Whereas, that's Russia creating the impression of collusion as a kind of fodder for the media. Is that well? They were feeding. There, there was a market for it. There was a huge market, I and mean, in, in this case, on the part of the Clinton campaign, it could have been on the part of the Trump campaign too. They're no better, but uh, the Russians understood that you know that uh, they had a paying customer, and uh, they provided them with with stuff that could have only come for, you know from their disinformation department, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it was then circulated by an uncritical me media for three years. Well, I mean, you know, that has left lasting scars because people, you know, we we say the Trump idiots now don't believe in the press. They don't believe in the intelligence services. Well, why should they after that? Uh, so I, the core point is that the communist destruction of objective standards which was really at the root of all the atrocities, uh, was uh, facilitated by mental habits that exist in free societies as well, and which have gained ground in free societies, including the United States and Britain, two places where you would most want it not them not to gain ground. I think that, uh, you know, in talking about you know fidel fidelity to fact, uh, honesty about history, commemoration of victims, uh, restoration of the value of the individual in Russia, we're talking about you know a necessary condition for the country's resurrection, morally and psychologically. 
But it's also important to bear in mind that some of these tendencies have affected us and have definitely diminished our ability to help the Russians because, you know, it's sort of heal or heal yourself. We, 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 you know, if we want to, to help that process uh, in Russia, then we have to think about what's happening in our own societies and why it is we are, are so susceptible to some of the same kind of thinking. Large Now, thankfully, because of democratic institutions, there are limits to how far it goes, but it, but it, it no question that it's embittered uh, and poisoned the internal atmosphere. Can we perhaps therefore be a little optimistic looking at Eastern Europe and Ukraine and seeing how hard they're prepared to fight for basic and absolute democratic values? Um, is there some cause for optimism looking at looking at them? Well, there is. There is, I believe. And uh, but I but but bear in mind uh, uh I think what is motivating the Ukrainians more, uh, Ukraine has its own share of internal problems, and it did before the invasion, and I, it may have after what we hope will be their victory. But uh, what is really motivating them is the you know integrity of the nation and the desire not to be, uh, not to have the national identity destroyed and not to be dominated by force. Uh, they could, in theory, win the war, and uh, and 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 revert to a very corrupt and and not very democratic situation. Although they were definitely definitely more democratic than Russia, mm. uh, you know, before the invasion. So I wouldn't necessarily attribute all this to a victory of democracy. Uh, or, you know, as a, a defense of democracy as so much as a defense of the Ukrainian nation, which is not the same thing. But Against still, you know, or... seeing is seeing, yeah, and the, the, the na nation language culture, all those things. Mm -hmm. But the and and fear of the barbarism of Russian occupation, which they definitely already demonstrated. Mm -hmm. But the but but um, beyond all that. Uh, I think that we should uh, we should bear in mind that their victory would be a a huge, potentially huge contribution to the de development of a democratic consciousness in both Russia and Ukraine. And could that help us towards perhaps understanding the origins of the crisis? I mean, we already uh have sort of discussed how internal issues and the fragility of putin's regime would have led him to start a small uh in his victorious mind a small, war, victorious yes. war. Yeah. um but at the same time did he also not fear that ukraine could become a template not for a purely democratic society but a template for a process of evolution towards a more pluralistic uh, absolutely society. absolutely and that's why they they launched that's why they they uh they launched the uh invasion of crimea the annexation of crimea the invasion and and war in eastern ukraine in order to distract russian opinion from the 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 ukrainian democratic example because after all euromaidan saw hundreds of thousands of people in the street 
uh, it was a spontaneous democratic uh, self-organizing uh, protest. Now, uh, you know, the uh, and 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 it led to the overthrow of a kleptocratic ruler. Well, that's a precedent that uh, the Russians. Uh, Found, would have found intolerable because you know the, the the regime controls the levers of power in Russia, but it's vulnerable to that type of mass protest. Mm -hmm. Those crowds that that big uh, would be impossible, might prove impossible to suppress, or the security services and the police might prove unwilling to open fire. And they might turn their guns on the people who are giving them mm -hmm. the orders. Uh, and that's uh, that's a prospect that, that frightened them a lot. And that was what uh, led first to the seizure of Ukraine and ultimately to what's happening now. Because uh, they had, you know, to, on the one hand, by launching a new invasion, they they counted on a resurgence of patriotic uh, support, uh, support for them, on the base, you know, on the basis of misguided patriotism. Of course, uh, of course, they imagined that this would be quick, and a quick victory, like the quick annexation and bloodless annexation of Crimea. They thought something similar was likely to happen, uh, and uh, at the same time, that they hoped. They hoped, I believe, that that reaction would smother any thoughts about imitating the the or following the Ukrainian example, and especially the uh, the example of the Euromaidan revolt. In speaking to um, you know many people, uh, as I have been doing, and, and and knowing you know quite a few Russians personally, it seems to me one of the most persistent and deep propaganda narratives that has really been inherited from the Soviet period and, and actively propagated by the current regime is that democracy cannot work uh, in Russia, that Russians somehow are genetically incapable of uh, creating a democratic society. And that seems to create a sort of level of apathy. Well, why even why even try to resist if it's never why going even to bother work? bother with these hopeless people? Yes. <laughs> yeah, why why should I even, you know, put my head above the parapet if that's all hopeless? Um, and if Ukraine, if Belarusia are seen to develop a civil society, uh that would have uh, a massive, massive influence, of course. <laughs> yeah, because the Ukrainians, I mean, they are Slavs, uh uh they're they're culturally different, but uh you know, there are many many families that have you you know, many people in Russia were born in what is now Ukraine. Many uh, Ukrainians uh, spend time in Russia. Uh, many of their, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous to talk about mixed marriages, but they're marriages in which one person, you know, came from Ukraine, one person came from Russia. And uh, their relatives and, and family ties and friendships and uh, people studied in Ukraine. Ukrainians, uh, one time or another, worked in what is now Russia. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the a functioning, prosperous democracy in Ukraine would have a, a huge impact on the situation in Russia. I mean, the Russian the Russian regime is is archaic in many ways, and it's it's too archaic for the modern society that Russia has become. 
and it would uh so that's what they fear it would work of course to the benefit of the russian people you know and get them off their knees and give them dignity in a way that uh that that they haven't been able to achieve but uh, that's exactly what the uh what the putin regime wants to prevent and in this respect the the putin regime is the enemy of both the russian people and the ukrainians even though the russians are the ones who are being used against the ukrainians as we know so my last question really uh sort of wraps that up so to an extent do you think the fate of belarus ukraine and russia are intimately tied together oh they are they're definitely tied together because uh especially in light of this aggression because uh they had a common fate uh in the sense that they were all parts of the soviet union they all underwent the spiritual and moral and intellectual destruction that was that was that was wrought by the imposition of communist ideology and uh, uh and they're all recovering to one degree or another as we see in belarus and and uh, russia not very well and in ukraine only partially but the example of the advantages of democracy and the, the the benefits for 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 everyone uh and the artificiality which would of course highlight the artificiality of the situation and russia's a group uh, a place in which i you know by some estimates 35 percent of the national wealth is is controlled by, by a very, very 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 small kleptocratic group uh so uh definitely that would that would be a huge factor in the democratization and demilitarization of of the region and the removal of of the threat of further violence that's what in in a sense that's why it's you know ukraine is so worthy of our support and in a fragile system, it could be the domino that triggers other changes. A Lukashenko may not survive Ukrainian victory. Putin himself uh, will come under uh, severe pressure if Lukashenko collapses. We assume we assume those things could happen, but regardless of what happens to Lukashenko and Putin, the the example of a successful democratic society in Ukraine would be very infectious and uh, uh it would definitely have an effect on the the social consciousness of uh no matter how uh, state television tried to in russia tried to disguise it uh because and 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 of course the the fact of defeat uh if there is a defeat uh would be ultimately impossible to hide and there's four million people who have fled the country the nascent sort of middle class who uh aren't plugged into state tv if they were to return theoretically that also would be uh very destabilizing but that's no by no means certain that they would they return. won't they won't they won't return under existing conditions mm -hmm. but they would return after the, the i i think in a in a post-victory you know a, a situation 
that uh, uh, that developed after the victory of of, of of Ukrainian arms, and then they could they would of course be a massive a massive uh, stimulus for the democratic development of the country. Well, David, that's a relatively positive note to end our conversation on. There are literally a million questions that uh, I could still ask you. We haven't even touched upon uh, the criminalization of Russia in the 90s. There are tons of things to explore there, but unfortunately the time is up. For anyone that has not read David's books, I sincerely advise you to read them. They're both enlightening and terrifying and indispensable uh, to read in the current situation. Um, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you, and I'm really grateful that you've made so much of your precious time available. Oh, I'm happy to do so. I, I, I look forward to talking to you again.